Your conscience is a moral compass, right? That affirms your actions or condemns your actions and it helps guide our behavior. But your conscience has to be trained by God's word to be reliable. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open to 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, we're going to continue in our, our work through Timothy and Titus. First uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus, remember, are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, Paul wrote them, the Apostle Paul wrote them to, to two young men, Timothy and Titus, who were pastoring churches. Uh, Timothy's church was Ephesus and uh, Titus was pastoring a church in, in Crete. And both of these churches had pretty significant problems. So there are no problem-free churches, uh, even in the first century. And we look around today and we go, oh my goodness, there are churches that are such a mess and have problems. That's pretty much the normal state of affairs with sinful human beings. But um, Paul is going to give, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Timothy some enormously inspired advice about how to lead the church of God. Now, Paul had met Timothy and Titus about 10 years before, 47, 48 A.D. And remember, Paul had been placed under house arrest by the Romans about 60 A.D., and he has spent two years in house arrest in Rome. He was released about 62, and Paul and his ministry team, which included uh, Timothy and Titus, uh, had visited the city of Ephesus. Paul, uh, Rob is going to give you a, a quick look at Ephesus, where it fits on the map. It's at the west coast of the Anatolian Peninsula, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Pastor Roger is leading a tour. Uh, it's going to be kind of a cruise tour, the world of Paul, and they're going to be going to Ephesus in May of uh, 2020. So Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the local church there while he went into northern Greece, which is uh, uh, today it's its own nation, modern name Macedonia. That was a region uh, before, so you can see Macedonia on the map up there. And Paul's been gone about a year, and it's now about 63 AD, and he writes a letter to Pastor Tim. And his purpose in writing this letter to Pastor Tim is to give Tim, Timothy, uh, some principles of pastoral care, to encourage him to fight the good fight of faith, to teach the church of Ephesus how to behave in the house of God, because they were not doing well. Paul instructed Timothy in this epistle, this letter, Quite a number of things. He said, here's how you deal with false teachers. Here's the roles of men and women in the church. Here's the qualifications for church leadership. Here's the danger of heresy and apostasy. Here's how you care for widows. Here's how you handle money. So it's really a, a global look at what it takes to pastor the body of Christ. Most of all, Paul wanted to give Timothy guidance in his responsibilities as a young pastor. Timothy's probably at this stage of the game about 40 Thereabouts. Paul is near the end of his life. He's martyred at 68 AD at probably 63, 64, 65 years old. So he's probably 20 years older, 23, 24 years older than Timothy. 
So Timothy's going to wind up pastoring the church at Ephesus for more than 30 years. He's there until he's martyred in AD 97. So today in chapter 4, Paul is going to jump back to the problem that necessitated the letter in the first place, which was the pressing problem of false teachers in the church at Ephesus. So if you could pick up the narrative with me at chapter 4, verse 1, of 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says in latter times that some will fall away from the faith. You want to underline that in your Bible, fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Here's the principle. Satan uses weapons of deception in order to create doubt in God's goodness and destroy faith in God's word. Satan uses weapons of deception in order to create doubt in God's goodness and destroy faith in God's word. Now, it seems as though Paul has received direct knowledge from God the Holy Spirit about the church at Ephesus and their falling away from the faith because years before this, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders about this very thing that was going to happen. This is a number of years before this letter was written. And if you go back with me, Rob will put it on the screen. You don't have to open it in your Bible. Acts 20, verse 29, Paul is meeting with the leaders, the elders of Ephesus. He's going on his way to Jerusalem, probably around 56, 57 uh, AD. So this is a number of years before. And he tells them, verse 29, For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Here's the terrifying verse, verse 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse, that means twisted things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. So Paul is saying, you're going to have apostasy and false teachers from inside your own body. They're going to be your, quote, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, this is going to happen. Well, the only way he would know that, obviously, if the Holy Spirit tells him. But in general rule of thumb, the Spirit had told Paul and actually prophesied throughout Scripture that in latter times there would be this apostasy. Well, latter times is really a broad term. It really refers to the last days. And we always talk to people and they go, we must be living in the last days. Well, the last days biblically are the time from Christ's birth, His first coming, until His second coming. So we're talking about, we've been in the last days now for 2,000 years. So when someone says, we're in the last days, yeah, we've been there for two millennia and we're going to be there until the second coming. So it's an extended period of time. And the reality is people have been falling away from the faith since the beginning of creation. The very first creature to fall away from the faith. Who was it? It was Lucifer. Lucifer. He rebelled against God's rule in heaven. That means light bearer. That was his name. And he ruled, he fell again, he fell away. He rebelled against God's rule in heaven. God judged him, and he came to earth for a very specific reason. Satan came to earth to try and enlist humans in his rebellion against God. He had already led a rebellion in heaven, and one-third of the angels followed him. Now he sees Adam and Eve are created, and he says, Aha! I can enlist more soldiers on my side of the equation in my war against God. And here's how he did it. The very first thing is he deceived Eve into doubting God's goodness and eating the forbidden fruit. Now, Eve was deceived. 
Adam was not deceived. Adam just flat disobeyed with full knowledge, right? He, he knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived. Adam, Adam, he knew what he was doing. And they were the first humans to fall away or depart from the faith. Now, the word, I don't know what your Bible says. Mine says fall away. Some others have other words. But the Greek word is aphistemi, and it literally means to stand away, to make stand away, to go away, to fall away, to defect, to withdraw. So the English word we use here is apostasy, A-P-O-S-A-S-T-Y. An apostate is someone who abandons the truth that they once declared allegiance to. An apostate is someone who willfully turns away from the truth of their Christian faith with full knowledge. They're not like Eve. They operate out of deception. They're like Adam. They operate with full knowledge and full disobedience because they, they act in accordance or in opposition to the light they have. Let me give you an example. An Old Testament example of falling away is King Amaziah of Judah. God assessed the life of King Amaziah in 2 Chronicles 25 too. And God said, he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with his whole heart. We discovered that this king began well, and God blessed him with a great victory over Edom, which was their enemy. After God had blessed Judah with his great victory over Edom and Edom's gods, King Amaziah brings back the false gods of Edom, their idols, sets them up in Jerusalem and worships the false gods of Edom that they had just defeated. Why would you worship gods that were too weak to protect the people that you just defeated? Now, would you would call this stuck on stupid, right? The one-line summary of his life at the end of that chapter is Amaziah turned away, same idea, turned away willfully from following the Lord. By the way, that is not an epitaph you want on your gravestone, especially when God does the carving. He turned away, she turned away from following the Lord. So Amaziah chose to abandon the God of his father. He chose to reject what he knew to be true, and he ended up being murdered by his own people. Another example, King Saul. King Saul is a classic example of someone who chose to reject what he knew to be true in light of full knowledge and multiple revelation from Samuel the prophet. One of Paul's ministry's teammates was named Demas. And the last line we hear about him in Scripture is, Demas forsook Paul, having loved this present world. Well, let me tell you, if you love this present world, you better love quick because you're not here long. Right? I mean, this present world, as you get older, has less and less and less for us. That's just reality. Matthew 24. Jesus is giving a private briefing to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. We call this the Olivet Discourse. And they said, what's going to be the sign of your coming? How are we going to need to know when the end of the age comes and when you're going to show up again? And one of the signs he predicted, Jesus said there's going to be worldwide rejection of God's truth. Worldwide apostasy, that's the whole principle here. Many, many people are going to turn away from the faith. So you and I should not be surprised. It's going to be disappointing, but we should not be surprised when people turn away from the faith. Everyone in this room knows people who come to Christ, they get involved in church, man, they're on it, and then they just disappear, 
Right? You don't see them anymore. Sometimes they come back. Sometimes they don't come back. So this apostasy, this falling away, is a not uncommon phenomenon, even though it's a heartbreaking phenomenon. Paul uses the term fall away from the faith. And the faith here does not refer to the act of believing. I exercised faith in Christ. The faith refers to the content of what you believe. It's the content. The faith refers to God's revelation in the Bible. The Bible reveals the truth about who God is, who we are, the origin, the destiny, and the purpose of all things, and how people can have a personal relationship with Christ. So the faith is not this subjective, wishy-washy feeling. The faith is an objective set of truth that is grounded in space-time history. That's one of the things that makes the Bible unique. It's not metaphysical. It's historical. God operated in space-time history, and we've got a record of it at that point. So the Bible is a very rational set of facts and propositions that God has revealed to mankind, and people can either choose to accept and obey what God says, or they can choose to reject and disobey what God says, but no one can claim they didn't understand it. The Bible is eminently understandable. It's eminently comprehensible. The Bible says that people who fall away from the faith choose to reject the truth because they are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. That's the last half of verse 1. So they fall away because they're paying attention to the wrong source of information. Just a brief context. God created the material universe. That's the physical universe that we perceive with our five senses, right? Everything sensory, we can pick up with the five senses. But God also created the spiritual universe, much, much larger than the physical universe. And it's populated by immaterial, spiritual beings that we cannot perceive using our senses. The spiritual world is perceived by faith, not by sight, not by the five senses. Sometime after creation, we don't not sure when, Lucifer, the highest of all the created beings, organized a mutiny in heaven. And of course, Scripture tells us that one-third of the angels followed Satan from, in his rebellion, and they were all ejected from heaven. And Scripture calls those spirit beings that followed Satan, he calls them demons or fallen angels. That's what the Bible says. And the ones that remain loyal to God, good angels, we just call those angels. And the name Satan, by the way, means adversary or enemy. The name devil means slanderer or accuser. So we know that Satan, or the devil, is the adversary of God, which means he's your adversary too because you're following God. And he's also a slanderer, which means he tells lies about God and he tells lies about God's people. He's lying to God about you right now. He's making accusations against you right now, and those accusations in some cases are true. He says, you shouldn't save them. They're sinners. You can't believe what so-and-so did to you last week. You can't believe what they did last night. Did you monitor their thought life? And God the Father turns to Jesus, your advocate, your attorney, your defense attorney, and Jesus said, paid for, covered with the blood, done. Be grateful we have an advocate because we all are worthy of the charges we're accused of. But the blood of Jesus Christ covers us from how many sins? All sins should give us great, great hope. 
So these false teachers inside the church in Ephesus, they claim to follow Christ, but they're really listening to demons. They're really following demonic deceptions. They look like Christians, they act like Christians on the outside, but they're paying attention to demons and not Jesus. Interesting. Satan often uses people inside the church to deceive other people inside the church. Satan even used Peter to try and talk Jesus out of the cross. Peter, he also used Ananias and Sapphira to try and deceive the church in Jerusalem, and they were followers of Jesus. I am not unpersuaded at all that you'll see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven. Just because they lied doesn't mean they weren't saved. How many of us have lied even though we're saved? Let's get real. The rest of you liars didn't raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you. So genuine followers of Jesus always point others to Jesus, not themselves. False teachers always want people to follow them. And behind these false human teachers are demons who are deceiving them. Remember, Satan is the ultimate con artist. We hear a lot in our culture today about what? Identity theft, where people steal your identity uh, or con you into uh, something. Uh, they really fool you into believing something that is not true so that they can steal your identity and then they can steal your stuff. Many people are conned because someone on the other end of the line has promised them something for nothing. And the lure of greed gets them to say, oh, I have a brother-in-law in Nigeria. Let me give you my social security number. I got two calls this last week, one of them a week and a half ago, and they were telling me something's definitely wrong with your tax return. Well, number one, the IRS never ever calls you. They send you a letter. Just This is free advice here. If you get a phone call from anybody saying something's wrong, about your social security or your taxes, you know it's not legitimate because they write you. They will never phone call you. Okay, you can eliminate that. What Satan's demons do is they deceive people into doubting God's goodness and then denying the truth of God's word. The archetypal deception is when Satan deceived Eve and he began by creating doubt in her mind because the first thing he said was not a statement, it was a question. He said, indeed, has God said? Ooh, maybe you shouldn't trust what God says. He's trying to create doubt. And next, he directly denies God's explicit command and the resulting consequences. God said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And Satan says, you surely will not die. Whoa, well, those are mutually exclusive. Somebody is lying. You know, have you ever had that with your children? Johnny says A and Susie says B. Somebody's lying, right? We got to figure out who it is. Well, in this case, we already know who it is. Then Satan says, Eve, if you disobey God, you can become like God. Now, if that sounds a little strange, if God's really not a good God, why would you want to become like him? 
Right? Satan's intimating that God's not a good God. And then he says, if you disobey God, if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. Huh? If he's not a good God, why would I choose to be like him? She doesn't get to that point. Right now, she should have confronted Satan with God's word. Remember what Jesus did in the wilderness? Satan came to him after 40 days of hunger and says, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus said the same thing every time. It is written in the word of God, X, Y, Z. Fight Satan with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. She didn't do that. She paid attention to Satan and not God. Remember, deception is Satan's primary weapon against you. Deception. How do you combat satanic deception? First, remember that the source of spiritual deception is not human, it's demonic. Furthermore, we have to change our paradigm. Planet Earth is not a physical playground, it's a spiritual battleground. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Humans are not your enemies, they're deceived. But against the rulers, the powers, the rural forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of witness in the heavenly places. So we are right now at war with an invisible enemy who wants us dead. And none of us are immune to his tactics. Second, if you want to conquer deception after realizing the source of the deception... Two, diligently test everything against the Bible. Anything that contradicts God's word is obvious error, right? The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, and you're going to read this and go, Well, this is pretty obvious. Do not believe every spirit. Yeah, that would be a good idea. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Yeah, you can see them every day. Just turn on a news flow or a news feed or your internet, and there's lots of false prophets making claims. How do you do that? Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's the key. Underline this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Remember, here's the key. All satanic deception denies the deity of Christ. That is the core issue. You can figure out very quickly if they're from God or from Satan. Do they acknowledge that Jesus is Christ? Any belief system that denies that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the only way to heaven is a lie. You know that. It's very clear. Third, to combat deception, we are commanded to put on the full armor of God and to go into battle equipped with God's resources, not our own resources. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, in light of the spiritual conflict, in light of your satanic enemy, take up, put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. We cannot battle satanic deception under our own power. We don't have any of our own power to stand against the supernatural enemy that wants us dead named Satan. We must put on God's armor and depend on Holy Spirit power to do that. So, I mean, the application for us today is pretty obvious. How many of you have heard the term, and I know you've heard it a thousand times, <laughs> fake news? Fake news ain't new. It's been around since the Garden of Eden. That was the first fake news, right? <laughs> Here's the very first bit of fake news. You can become like God. 
That would be the very first lie, right? At least the first human one we were told. If you believe fake news, you can be fooled into making bad choices based on false information. Now, far more deadly than human fake news is demonic deception. Because if you believe Satan lies, that will separate you from God forever in hell. And the key to recognize a fake is real simple. You already know what I'm going to say. Become intimately equated with a genuine article. And then when you see a fake, you'll know exactly what it is. You know, the U.S. Treasury Department trains their agents extensively on counterfeiting. And counterfeiters are extremely clever. But they expose them and train them only on genuine currency. Steve Burrow currency, right? And when they come across a fake, they immediately recognize it because they know the real thing. As a follower of Jesus, your guidebook is in your lap or on your screen. The Bible is your spiritual GPS. It's your guidebook. It's your constitution. It's our operator's manual. It's our daily bread. It's our protection. It's our power in the battle. It's a love letter from God to us. 2 Peter 1.3 says the Bible tells you everything we need to know for life and godliness. So the reality is always compare everything you hear with what? With what God says in his word. And the cure for satanic deception is real simple. Immerse yourself in God's word every day and then obey what the Holy Spirit tells you from the word of God. Which means you actually have to open it and read it. Right? Just saying. Secondly, wherever the truth of the gospel goes, you can be sure that the deception of Satan will follow. And Satan many times uses human agents to deceive, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Here's the principle. Deliberately disobeying what you know is true deadens your conscience and destroys your ability to discern right from wrong. Deliberately disobeying what you know is true deadens your conscience and destroys your ability to discern right from wrong. This was Amaziah. This was... King Saul, and you can just go through Scripture and you will see warnings of characters who've done this. Now, the word hypocrisy here comes from a Greek stage play. It literally means someone who hides behind a mask. The Greek actors often put these masks, they would hold them up with a stick and, in order to play a character. But that character was not who they were in real life. They were pretending. So a hypocrite is a pretender. A hypocrite is a fake, a fraud. A hypocrite is a poser. We use that in today's term. And they deceive you by pretending to be something that there aren't. And these false teachers in Ephesus are hypocritical liars. They wear the mask of religion. They preached eloquent sermons. I mean, they were convincing liars. And they were able to habitually lie because they had no conscience. They've destroyed their conscience. Now, your conscience is a moral compass, right? that affirms your actions or condemns your actions, and it helps guide our behavior. But your conscience has to be trained by God's Word to be reliable. If your conscience is not trained by God's Word, it'll be trained by the culture. And the culture says what? Anything you want to do is fine. So you have friends, and they behave in a way, and you go, don't they have a conscience? 
Well, the conscience has been corrupted. The conscience has been deadened. The conscience has been seared because it's been habitually uh, listened to. And Paul uses that word seared conscience. That literally means cauterized. It literally means branded. It literally means burned with a red hot iron. Because when you're when your flesh is seared or branded, it damages the nerve endings so that they can't feel anything anymore. So you have scar tissue on that burn site or that brand site, and that burn site no longer has any feeling. Paul says if you repeatedly go against your conscience, when your conscience warns you to do something and you do it anyway, you're searing your conscience with a branding iron and habitually disobeying what you know to be true puts a callus on your conscience. It puts scar tissue on your conscience so it no longer has the ability to feel right from wrong or transmit that. It's like having an ear full of wax or it's like having cataracts on your eyes, right? They block your eyes and ears from doing what they're supposed to do, which is to transmit light or to transmit sound. That's what happens when we disobey our conscience. We are putting a callus on it. We're branding it. So we're making it unreliable to guide us. And these false teachers had been doing this. They had been disobeying their conscience to the point in time where there was no guide at all. So they could sin with freedom. They didn't have any guilt whatsoever. And they not only did it themselves, they commanded other people to follow them in their deception. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> these people without a conscience, these false teachers, they forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has given to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Here's the principle. False teachers fall away from biblical truth into either legalism or license. They forbid what God approves or they indulge in what God forbids. False teachers fall away from biblical truth into either legalism or license. They forbid what God approves or they indulge in what God forbids. Now this is the beginning of what we call Gnostic deception. The Gnostics, they were dualists in that they believed that all matter was evil. All physical matter was evil. The entire physical universe was evil, including the human body. The human body was evil, and only the spirit was good. So the entire physical creation was bad, and the spirit was good. The divine spark of God, they taught, was trapped inside this bad physical body, and that salvation could only be achieved through superior knowledge, their superior knowledge. Now, gnosis in Greek, is that means knowledge, right? There's two schools of thought in this Gnostic school. One was legalism. And legalism said the physical body is evil. And therefore, denying the physical body pleasure is the way to draw closer to God. And you go, well, this sounds like um, monasticism. This sounds like asceticism. They were teaching that all physical appetites were evil. All. And should be denied, even God-given desires for things like food, sex, etc., etc. So this led to the beginnings of the monastic tradition and asceticism, which says the way you draw closer to God is you deny the flesh. All the flesh, because the whole thing is evil. On the other hand, some people fell off the wagon the other way, and these some other Gnostics taught that only the spirit can relate to God, so what you do with the body doesn't matter because this body can't relate to God anyway. I mean, the body's evil. So indulge the flesh. Do whatever feels good. 
So there are two extremes. You fall off the wagon to legalism or you fall off the wagon into license. In our world today, you know which side we're on. We practice license without limits. There, no one can tell anybody what's right or wrong. It's right or wrong for you, right? Very subjective. The problem is that neither legalism or license has anything to do with a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Legalism always leads to pride. I'm better than you because I do not do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? And license leads to slavery because people that practice it become enslaved to their own physical desires, right? Their body runs their world. They can't say no. Both are enemies of God's grace because God's grace sets us free from slavery to the law and from slavery to the flesh. Jesus Christ gave us liberty not so that we could judge each other through legalism or become enslaved to our sensual desires, but God gave us liberty so we could love each other, sacrificially love each other like he loved us. So these false teachers are misrepresenting God. They're saying the entire physical world's bad, and therefore the only way to get closer to God is to not marry or engage in marital sex, and by the way, there's all these foods you can't eat, right? Paul says, wrong, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Here's the principle. God is a good God who created good things so people would enjoy his gifts and give him thanks. God is a good God who created good things so that people would enjoy his gifts and give him thanks. So Paul's responding to this legalism, this thou shalt not, by going back to the beginning. And he says, God is a good God who created the good universe. Remember when God finished the creation, he said, it said, and God looked at everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So God created the physical body with physical desires, right? And he also created the means to satisfy those desires. God created hunger and he gave us what? Physical food. Have you ever gone into the grocery store and just been amazed at the variety of physical food, at least on the perimeter, that's in the store? I mean, it's amazing. We had friends 30 years ago who came over from Turkey. And they came into our supermarkets and they couldn't believe that there was this free market system that would bring all of this stuff into one spot. I mean, it's really, really remarkable. So God gave us physical desires like hunger and he gave us food to satisfy those and he gave us sexual desires and he created marriage, among other things, to, to fulfill that need. So Paul says, when you enjoy the blessings of God's creation, good blessings, Give him thanks. Give him thanks for his goodness. Now, this doesn't mean that sinful people won't abuse God's gifts. We can abuse God's gift of food through gluttony, and we can abuse God's gift of sex through adultery and fornication. It doesn't mean God's gifts are evil. It doesn't mean the human body's evil. It simply says that all things should be dedicated to God. All things. And should be enjoyed as an act of worship and thanksgiving before God. We give thanks before a meal because we're grateful for the food. 
I'm amazed at the number of people that think that that's odd. Well, I obviously haven't been hungry. I mean, much of the world, when they give thanks for food, it's because they're not sure when the next one's going to show up. Uh, that, would, that would get a little gratitude going if you weren't sure there was going to be one coming. If we're engaged in an activity that we cannot legitimately worship God for, that would be a clue that you should not do it. If there's any activity you're involved in that you can't give thanks to God for and worship Him for and praise Him for His good gift, that might be a clue to go, I don't think I should be involved in this activity because I'm obviously not able to worship God for what I'm doing. One of Satan's greatest lies is that God is not a good God. And he started that with Eve. So she began to doubt God's goodness. And therefore, she began to listen to the lies because he had her convinced that God didn't care about his creatures because if he really cared about her, he would let her eat the one tree that he had said no to. I mean, it's amazing. He said, anything in the world you can have, everything except one thing and what's the one thing they want? The one thing that God forbids, right? If you doubt that God is a good God and he loves you, all you need to do is look at the cross. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still rebels and sinners and mutineers and at war with him, Christ died for us. Verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly <laughs> nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. And he's simply saying, look, Timothy, one of the primary jobs of a Christian minister or pastor is to transmit the truth of God to others. You're a teacher. You're called to transmit God's truth to others. However, every pastor needs to be fed themselves. If you're going to do that, Timothy, you have to be nourished on the word yourself. You cannot pass on to others what you yourself do not possess. And you say, well, that leaves me out, Brad. I'm not a teacher. Oh, yeah, you are. Every single one of you are teachers. You may not teach a large group, but if you have children, grandchildren, family, friends, neighbors, you are teaching by your words and your deeds, which means we cannot pass on faith to others unless we possess it ourselves. So we have to be nourished on the word. And of course, the way to be nourished on the word is to eat it. Feed on the word. First Peter 2, 2 says what? Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that it, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You know, it's pretty normal for babies to what? Want to eat. It's pretty normal for you and I to what? Want to eat. We typically do that three times a day or at least a couple times a day. It is normal for Christians to crave the nourishment that's found in the Bible. That's normal. As a matter of fact, if someone says... I'm a Christian, but I have no hunger for the Word of God. You would say, we have a sick Christian here. I mean, they are going to starve to death. You have a baby and they don't crave nourishment. We got big trouble real quick. We've got to get a suckle reflex going and we got to get food in that child. It's the same thing with us as Christians. Let me give you a couple thoughts. If you don't have a hunger for the Word of God, ask God to give it to you. And that means he's probably going to create problems in your life to develop some hunger, right? 
Number two, if you're not spiritually hungry for the Word of God, let me suggest that maybe you need more spiritual exercise. If you exercise heavily, it will increase your hunger because you're burning spiritual calories. Many, many Christians don't have a spiritual hunger for the Word of God, and it's real simple why. They're spectating. They're up in the 30th stand, you know, watching the game. They're not on the field. Athletes on the field of competition generally don't have an appetite problem because they're burning calories. Well, as Christians, we are called to serve and to burn spiritual calories in service. And when you're involved in serving, let me tell you, studying God's Word is like a starving person sitting down in a banquet. You need the nourishment because you're hungry, because you're in the process of serving. So daily feeding on God's Word is not just for pastors, it's for everyone. So Paulus told Timothy, here's what I want you to do, and now he tells him, here's what I want you to avoid. Verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You can, you can underline that. That is a key phrase. Four, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this, for godliness, that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Here's the principle. Becoming more like Jesus is the ultimate goal of life, and this requires lifelong discipline. Becoming more like Jesus is the ultimate goal of life, and this requires lifelong discipline. So Paul tells Timothy, number one, here's some things to avoid. Have nothing to do with myths, fables, etc., etc. Paul is essentially ridiculing the false teachers and their lessons because most of these false teachers, their, quote, lessons involve human opinion, myth, genealogy, speculation, metaphysics, fables, etc., 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 and today we would say, look, don't spend hours on social media. Don't follow someone else's Twitter storm. Don't get involved in the latest celebrity scandal hours a day. Television sitcoms don't always tell the truth. And political pundits who predict what happened tomorrow really have no clue. There's all sorts of manifestations of this same kind of thing today. Paul says, stop majoring in the minors. It doesn't matter. Focus on what counts. Don't trade your things, your life, for the stuff of this life because this life is pretty short, right? It's pretty temporary, and we in this room know that. All that really counts in this life is real simple. Your relationship with God. When you're on your deathbed, if you get one, you may not get one, right? may not get to that deathbed. You might have a car accident. You may be gone. But all that's going to matter is, what's my relationship with Jesus Christ? Nothing else matters. The rest of this stuff down here is fluff. It is massive distraction. Don't get distracted by the peripheral. Focus on the pivotal. 
So the goal of those who follow Jesus is godliness. He says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So what in the world is that? Godliness means to have a reverence for God. It means to treat God as holy. It means God is not your buddy. It means God is God. God is holy. It means to have a right relationship with the Creator, and I am the creature because God's in heaven and I'm on the earth. So there is a reverence, a revering, a treating God as holy. A godly person is someone who's growing more like God in their attitudes and actions. They're becoming more like Jesus in their character and conduct. They are growing in godliness, and that is not automatic. It requires discipline. And Paul is now going to give you a physical metaphor to create a spiritual point. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. The word discipline here literally is the Greek word gymnase, where we get gymnasium. Gymnasium, the gym, is a place of what? It's a place of, of what? Pain. It's a place of pain. Oh, I like that. Yeah. The gym is a place of physical training, vigorous physical training. It comes from the Greek word Andrew talked about this morning, which means naked. Because Greek athletes always competed naked because they felt with some legitimacy that wearing a toga in the 100-meter dash could be a bit of an impediment. And the sandals didn't work too well. Flip-flop, flip-flop. You know, trying to run a race in flip-flops, probably not a good idea. So they just took all the clothes off because they didn't want anything to hinder their mission, which was winning that competition. I didn't put this on screen. I probably should have, but I'm going to repeat it twice. Discipline is systematic training that imposes order and control to achieve a goal. I'm going to say it again. Write it down. Discipline is systematic training that imposes order and control to achieve a goal. Three times a charm. Discipline is systematic training that imposes order and control to achieve a goal. Most of us hate that, don't we? See, become physically fit, Paul says, discipline is required. There is no effortless way to get and stay physically fit, is there? Especially not right after Thanksgiving. When you look at the training schedules of professional athletes, it's mind-numbing. See, Olympic athletes usually train six days a week, minimum between four and six hours a day, usually broken up in couple-hour blocks, and it's intense training. Even worse, wrestlers not only have to train, they have to endure severe calorie restriction in order to make weight because you wrestle in weight classes. So there are sometimes... 48 hours before they wrestle, I mean, they're chewing gum, and that's it. So it really requires discipline to compete at a professional level. Now, Paul says, oh, that's good, discipline's fine, but physical fitness has limited value because it's only profitable in this life because you're going to die and leave this particular body behind. Sometimes our priorities get a lot of whack, though. Pastor Steve Cole writes that the great evangelist George Whitfield once told of seeing some criminals riding in a cart on their way to the gallows. They were arguing like a bunch of kids about who should sit on the right-hand side of the cart. 
Here were men condemned to die that very day. But their focus was on who got the best seat on the way to their own execution. Would you say the priorities are a little misplaced? Just saying. Our culture does the same thing. Many people in our culture do what? They spend a life trying to acquire more money to buy more stuff to impress people they don't even like. Or they don't even know, right? And it's all going to the landfill, right? Everything in your house is going to the landfill. It may not go while you're alive, but your children will throw it away. <laughs> they will trash your treasures before you're cold. It's over. I know most of you are going, they can't do that. Oh, yes, they can. You're not going to be here. Furthermore, you won't care, right? Because you're in heaven. We get distracted with the trivial. So, key question, why bother disciplining your life? Why would you do that? Well, we sweat at the gym because the goal is worth the effort. Physical fitness is a worthy goal, even though it's a temporary one. Paul says, Growing more like Jesus is a goal that will pay dividends for all eternity. Godliness is something that Paul strove for on a daily basis. He said later in that verse, It is for this, for godliness, that we what? Labor and strive. And that word strive is agonizia. It means to agonize. It refers to someone in athletic competition, a wrestler who's giving every last ounce of strength to win the match. You know, anyone who pushes themselves into the pain zone and stays there, we would say, you're either highly motivated or you're just plain stupid, <laughs> right? Why would you do that? Because the prize is worth the price. If you don't remember what the prize is, you'll never pay the price. Why would you discipline to keep your blood sugar in order? Because diabetes can kill you. Why would you work to keep your blood pressure in order? Because a stroke can take you out and you hope it kills you. Being in heaven is a lot better than living with a massive stroke. Just saying. But when our blood pressure is not managed, by the way, when the meal comes around, it's pretty tough to say, well, I'm not going to eat that because of my blood pressure. Keep your eye on the prize. It's easier to discipline yourself. Paul said, I discipline myself for godliness because I'm always focused on heaven. My hope is on heaven. It's not in this life. He knew that someday every one of us are going to stand before the living God. And he says, I can look forward to hope because Jesus Christ has forgiven my sin and made me right with God. And he is my only hope at that point in time. See, God's provided salvation for everyone but that salvation is only applied to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, God not only saves you, he wants you to grow in godliness. He wants you to grow more like Jesus. It's interesting, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit works this out. I had no idea Andrew was preaching this morning, but this is the close of this message this morning, and here it is, Hebrews 12. I guess the Lord knew we needed to hear it twice. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Now circle that. That's different for every one of you. Some of you is French fries. 
Some of you may be milkshakes. I don't know what the encumbrance is, but whatever it is, I'm just using food. And the sin, which so easily entangles us. All of us have habitual sins that can entangle us, trip us up, weigh us down, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the key activity we need to do. Verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Most of us in this room are way old enough to know that life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And if you think the last few miles have been tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. The last five years of life are usually the most difficult, folks. It's true, isn't it? That's the bad news. The good news is you have God, the Holy Spirit, living in you and giving you everything you need to be more than conquerors, regardless of what happens in the last five years of your life. Here's the key. When you drive a car, or you drive a motorcycle, or a bicycle, you always steer toward what your eyes look at. You will always, when you're driving a car, what do they say? Don't turn your head because the car will go where you turn your head. And when you're on a motorcycle or a bicycle, it's even worse. You lean your head and you just lean that direction. The whole thing goes that way. Here's the interesting part. When you stare at Jesus, you will steer toward Jesus. Eve took her eyes off the Lord and looked at Satan. And where did she steer toward? Satan. What you stare at, you will steer toward. I didn't put that on screen either, but that's pretty good. Right? So be careful what you stare at, because that's the direction you're going to follow. What do they say? When it's foggy and you can't see, pull off the road, but turn your lights off, because if you have your foot on the brake... The person behind you is going to steer right toward those lights and run into you, even if you're off the road in deep fog. Because what we look at is where we head. Be careful what you look at. Paul says, or whoever wrote Hebrews, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consciously, day to day to day to day, come back and fix your eyes on Jesus. And the best way to do that is in God's Word. Okay, let's summarize, then Marty will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one. Satan uses weapons of deception in order to create doubt in God's goodness and destroy faith in God's word. Number two, deliberately disobeying what you know is true deadens your conscience and destroys your ability to discern right from wrong. Number three, false teachers fall away from biblical truth in either legalism or license. They forbid what God approves or they indulge in what God forbids. Both are obviously an error. Number four, the truth is God is a good God who created good things so that people could enjoy his gifts and give him thanks. And lastly, becoming more like Jesus is the ultimate goal of life. And this requires lifelong discipline, and it is worth the discipline. Absolutely worth the discipline. Okay. Thank you for coming today. I think we probably got enough to do in the next 167 hours until, Lord willing, I see you again. Continue to read ahead. We'll be in Timothy for a few more weeks. Um, and now that you know, that was pretty wimpy. <laughs> now that you know, 
Amen. Love you. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.